City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Design Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. As founders of the American Theatre Wing's Antoinette Perry Tony Award and president of the American Theatre Wing, I am indeed happy to be able to bring you these seminars. They offer a unique opportunity to hear performers, producers, playwrights, directors, designers, and a host of theatre professionals discuss the realities of working in the theatre. Since introduced in 1973, more than 900 of Broadway's and off-Broadway's and off-off-Broadway's best have participated. The wing is more than the Tony Awards, which are proudly given in recognition of distinguished achievement in the craft of theatre. We are a continually expanding organization with year-round programs dedicated to serving the theatre through the community. The Wing began as a volunteer organization, and today most of the work we are able to do is because of the volunteers who give so willingly of their time. We are a source that helps develop new audiences. We initiated introduction to Broadway in 1991 and since then have enabled 70,000 New York City high school students to attend the Broadway show, many for the first time. We continue to reach out with our newest program, Theatre in Schools, through which professionals like those you will meet today volunteer to go into classrooms to discuss working in the theatre. This in-classroom targets every facet of the business of theatre, from playwrights and directors to press agents and poster artists and costumers and lighting designs. Not only do we want these young people to become theatergoers, but we want them to know the wide range of other job opportunities that exist in our business. We are a means of bringing the magic of theater to thousands who cannot get to the theater itself. The Wings Hospital Program dates back to World War II and the Stage Door Canteen. It continues today with performers from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world, volunteering their time to do over 100 shows each year in nursing homes, veterans' hospitals, children's wards, and aid centers in the New York area. We are proud to be of service, happy to have a wonderful working relationship with the theatrical community and are grateful to everyone who makes what the American Theatre Wing does possible. Now today's seminar on design is headed by Professor Tish Dates, who is a theatre critic as well as a historian of the theatre, and Tony Walton, who is one of our most eminent designers and now director. And so I'm going to turn it over to them to introduce the panel 
who are the winners of the American Theatre Wing Design Award, which unlike the Tonys, cover Off-Broadway and Off-Off-Broadway as well. And now, Tish Dates and Tony Walton. Would you please take over? Thank you, Mrs. Stevenson. Um, I'd like to introduce my panel, uh, starting over in this direction. Uh, we have Robin Phillips, who has uh, directed plays in such remarkable theaters as the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Stratford Festival Theater in Canada, Lincoln Center, uh, the New York Shakespeare Festival, and, and hither and yon, and all over the place uh, in several different countries. Um, most recently, Jekyll and Hyde on Broadway. Um, he is here, actually, however, because he has won the 1997, or shared the 1997 uh, Scene Design Award uh, for his scenic design of Jekyll and Hyde, uh, working with James Noon, um, who has also designed uh, many, many places and a lot of plays at the uh, Manhattan Theatre Club, I believe. Uh, some of my favorite sets of his are The Gin Game and Cowgirls and Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune. Um, and I can hardly wait to see what he's done with Martin Sherman's A Madhouse in Goa, neither part of which takes place anywhere near Goa. Um, <laughs> Uh, he and, and Robin have not only won uh, the American Theatre Wing 1997 Scenic Design Award, sharing it with uh, Christina Podubiak, who could not be with us today, but they also won the Drama Desk Award, the three of them, in scenic design. Uh, and then moving along, um, Beverly Emmons was originally a dancer, and she's done a great deal of, uh, of dance lighting as well as theatre lighting. Uh, in dance, working with some of the greats like Martha Graham and Merce Cunningham, and uh, a, a, wonder, a, a group of remarkable people like that. Uh, she's led a lot of experimental theater and is very sensitive to the nuances and complexities of that. And of course, she's led a, a great many big commercial projects and, in fact, has been nominated for seven, at last count, did I lose one? Seven Tony Awards. Uh, she and um, I guess it was John Burry? Uh, Amadeus. Uh, won uh, together, shared an award for a Tony Award for Amadeus. She's won several American Theatre Wing Lighting Design Awards, um, most recently uh, for both Jekyll and Hyde and When the World Was Green, but she also, within our recent memory, won for Passion and for The Heiress, and I can't think how many earlier ones. We were just trying to put that together. Um, she's also the artistic director of the Lincoln Center Institute, which um, engages in educating young people and providing opportunities for young people to see theater and runs a nifty black box there um, called the, uh, the Clark Theater. Um, moving on over in this direction, uh, we welcome Basil Twist. Um, Basil is a third generation puppeteer. Um, he was a puppeteer in Peter and Wendy, which we're going to talk about today. Um, he also is the, the only American graduate of uh, the International School of Puppetry in Charleville, France. And his solo puppetry extravaganza, The Araneidi, The Araneidi Show, 
uh, which was presented at last year's International Festival of Puppet Theater, has just won a Bessie Award. Congratulations, Basil. Uh, next to Basil, I'd like to introduce Liza Larwin. Uh, Liza produced Lee Brewer and Bob Tulson's The Gospel at Colonus, The Warrior Ant, and Sister Susie Cinema. She's also a playwright, and she's here today to discuss her collaboration with designer Julie Archer on Peter and Wendy, um, which Liza produced and also adapted from the J.M. Berry novel about growing up. Next to Liza, Danny Gates, the partner of the late Howard Crabtree, is a clothing manufacturer, and he worked with Howard some on the award-winning costumes for Howard Crabtree's When Pigs Fly. And uh, next to him is Mark Waldrop. Uh, Mark Waldrop did almost everything on When Pigs Fly in terms of creating it that Howard Crabtree didn't, which means <laughs> he co-conceived it with Howard. He wrote the sketches and the lyrics, and he directed it. Um, he's won several awards, including the 1995 Edward Cleveland Award for Most Promising New Lyricist. And he and Danny are here to talk about their collaboration with costume designer Howard Crabtree. And finally, I am um, very thrilled that um, Tony Walton could join us as, uh, as co-chair. Um, he has done uh, dazzling designs for theater, film, and television. And to prove it, he won an Oscar for All That Jazz, an Emmy for Death of a Salesman, and uh, three Tony Awards. Um, he, his most recent American Theatre Wing Design Award was for She Loves Me. He also, in 1991, was inducted into the Theatre Hall of Fame. And in addition to being a costume designer and a set designer, and by the way, he received nominations this year in both of those categories, in set design for two shows <laughs> and in costume design for one. But he also, in the last couple <coughs> of years, has been directing which means that one of the logical directions for this panel should be to talk about the way that directors and producers work with designers and writers work with designers and designers work with themselves as directors and directors work with <laughs> themselves as designers. And uh, I think we could spin this topic out for, for quite a mm. while. Um, why don't we ta uh, start off with, with costumes. Um, would, I, I think it'd be a good idea, Danny, if you explained <coughs> how you came to be sort of working with Howard on the costumes and what happened. I mean, Howard died very shortly after finishing the costumes. Is that correct? correct. Just yeah, a few he days. Died on June 28th, which is about a month and a half before the show opened. And how many days after uh, the costumes were um, pretty much he had finished? He had finished uh, a, a great percentage of them. What he hadn't finished, he had basically seen what had been cut out, and they were all being built out you know, by seamstresses both in our houses and in, in here in Manhattan. So he had seen, I would say, 90%. He had finished 90% of the work. Um, we used to have fittings. Mark used to drive the actors out to the house. And you want to say where the house is? Oh, it's in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And it's a schlep. It's a two-hour drive for Mark. And he would drive each one of the actors out, and we would fit them downstairs in the dining room, and then we'd take them upstairs to the bedroom where Howard was, was pretty much bedridden. And he would oversee the whole thing, and this was too long, and that was too short, and this was too wide, and the corrections would be made, and the actor would go back downstairs, and the next one would come up. Mm -hmm. So this went on for 
few weeks. Yeah, over, a the, few weeks. over a period of about five weeks. So he saw everything basically on somebody. He might not have seen everything totally complete, but he was he was there many times climbing right out of bed on his hands and knees. He <laughs> saw it. He saw it in his mind's eye. And there were a lot of things, like the way the costumes would work together when the full stage picture was complete, that I never understood until we actually got on stage. And I went, oh, but that's why it, it, he picked that color. You have to remember that Howard really never saw, he never really saw the backers audition. So all of the pieces that go around the costumes, he was not he had never seen, he was not that completely aware of. He knew the ideas Mark had, but there were no set, there was nothing, you know, th that would show the accentuation of the costumes. Maybe we should back up, and you and, and Howard co-conceived it. This mm -hmm. is you were, you suddenly had a brainstorm. Well, I, I, I was almost dragged into this project <laughs> uh, against my better judgment. Well, it turned out to be a wonderful thing for me, but, right. but, uh, Howard had another show called Howard Crabtree's Whoop-dee-doo, uh, which he performed in. And I had a, a few songs and sketches in that show, but it wasn't my show. And uh, right after that show closed, Howard and uh, our, one of our producers, Gail C., came to me and said, okay, let's write, an, let's write another one. Let's write uh, the next show, the next Howard Crabtree show. And I, I had a lot of trepidation that it would be compared to Whoop-dee-doo, maybe unfavorably, maybe considered to be son of Whoop-dee-doo. Uh, but they, you know, Howard was very insistent. But he I, had that gift. If you look you know? at Whoop-dee-doo and you look at, at When Pigs Fly, it, it's a progression. It's, it's a Howard. progression. Howard with no money was Whoop-dee-doo. Finally, Howard had money. That's when Pigs Fly, and he still overspent the budget. So I think that, and if Howard had lived, I, can, I think there probably would have been a third where yeah. he got even further. Well, we should say that When Pigs Fly has been running since, uh, what, a year ago, August? August. Or? Yes. Yeah, we're, we're, so you've forgiven him for overspending the budget? <laughs> we didn't actually yeah. overspend it, he just looks like he overspent it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to show us what you mean by that, would you like to invite uh, yes, an actor uh, up, up on the stage? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll bring them up in the order in which the costumes appear in the show. So that would mean first uh, we'll have Keith Cromwell, who is our dance captain and the only man in New York who could understudy all five of the actors in the show. <laughs> this, this is... Uh, <laughs> this is uh, for a number called You've Got to Stay in the Game. And just to give you an idea about how Howard and I work together, the, the show deals in a, in a sort of uh, metaphorical way with a lot of gay issues. And, in Whoop-dee-doo, we had had a lot of success with a number called Tough to be a Fairy, where the fairies were with wings and wands, you know. So in, when we were approaching this show, we said, well, what, what term haven't we used? And we thought of queens. And we went through a long list of queens, literal Very historical long. queens, <laughs> chess queens, fairy queens, <laughs> any kind of queen you could think of. And we finally came up with the idea of the four queens from a deck of playing cards. And uh, so once we had that metaphor for the number, I could go off and write the number, and Howard could design his playing card costumes, which he tried to make rather two-dimensional looking. And uh, the choreography in the number sort of accentuates how two-dimensional the costume is.
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it, it appears that the headdress is in some way zippered onto yes, the skull. That, that's another thing that Howard got to be very good at. Uh, he was very aware of, he had worked uh, in the costume shop of uh, La Cage Fall, uh-huh. and he said it was like his graduate course to take all those costumes and turn them inside out, see how they came apart for cleaning and understand exactly how they were made. So he always designed with an eye towards uh, practicality, like the zipper that lets the, uh, <laughs> the crown come off of the skull cap. Terrific. Thank you, Keith. <laughs> uh, and then next one up will be John Wasiniak, and he is wearing a costume from the opening of the second act, which is called Wear Your Vanity with Pride. <laughs> this is a, a restoration look <laughs> of sorts. Is the wig foam? The wig is foam, and Howard did do these. He sculpted those wigs himself. Those oh. are actually his own two hands who made the wigs for this number. Uh, this is a good example of how we would come up with a number to facilitate a trick. Now, the, this uh, number, all the costumes in the number are different, but there are two ladies who start out sitting at vanity tables and at a crucial point in the number stand up, lift the vanity tables up onto their hips, and then a rip cord is pulled and the vanity table skirts fall into full skirts that mm-hmm. match the costumes. That was a trick that Howard had wanted to do for years. Mm-hmm. and. He said, now in this show, we're going to do that trick, so write a number for it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's what we did. Uh But Howard did, uh, he did study historical uh, drawings, like there are red heels on these shoes, which Mm -hmm. apparently is very correct for that period. That's a detail I never knew anything about. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the costumes are mostly made, uh, in this number, are mostly made of upholstery fabrics Mm -hmm. that were dyed and... uh, used in unconventional ways. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, next we have James Heatherly. He's wearing one of the finale costumes. There's a sort of a uh, a running gag in the show about (laughs) Howard's high school uh, guidance counselor who wanted him to go into a number of professions other than costume design. And one of those professions was uh, chicken farming. <laughs> so in the finale, Howard manages to, to bring it all full circle and, and embrace the careers he was supposed to do through costume. So this costume represents chicken farming in a sort of skewed Ziegfeld kind of way. And uh, one thing that Howard was brilliant at was understanding that in the visual humor of the costumes, once you made the entrance, that was a laugh. But then he was very good at building tricks into the costumes so that you could get a laugh farther into the number. And uh, all the finale costumes have tricks in them, uh, which are revealed at the end of a a little Ziegfeld chorus girl Mm -hmm. kind of verse. So James would say, uh, it's sad to earn a living supplying poultry buyers. I start out with these sweet young chicks and end up plucking friars. <laughs> uh, now, I dare say you didn't travel this into town in your car. You all these no. No. These, these were 
constructed out there. For These the are most constructed. Part. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so and we would. You had a number, that's why we a moved up there. Fleet of trucks to bring them all in. No, we had one pickup and many trips. <laughs> 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 Thank you, James. <laughs> Made. Where were they made? Mm -hmm. They were made for the most part uh, out at their home in, <coughs> in, in, in Bucks County, Bucks Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. We have a farm <coughs> with a lot of space, but and it still was crowded. Did you have people with little old ladies um, sewing? We had a couple people out there. Um, many of, much of it Howard did make. Um, he was able to complete a lot of it before he died. Um, and we did have a head seamstress out there who worked mm -hmm. at the house and out of her house. And then the final touches were put on... Uh, here in New York, um, we have a costume house here who did the final things. It was a fascinating thing to be out in this beautiful farm in this rural setting. And uh, there was one point, there's a, there's a pig, flying pig costume in the show and a centaur costume in the show. And at one point, uh, sort of in this green meadow between these trees was this uh, clothesline and there were these huge foam <laughs> shapes of, of a, a horse and a pig. It looked like a slaughterhouse. <laughs> are most of the costumes rigged for quick change? They all are. They all are. Mm -hmm. Howard is very conscientious of that. I, I would ordinarily say, what did you as a director want from your costume designer? But it sounds like on this show, it was more, what did your costume designer want from you as a director? <laughs> it was a very unconventional way of working, but it, mm -hmm. it seemed to, for some reason, having the, the limitations put on me, or the, it's hard to call them limitations when you see them. They're not really limitations. They're, they just kind of opened me up. They opened up my creativity. Howard was a wonderful collaborator in that way. Liza, what did you as a producer want from Julie Archer? What did you two start talking about in 1990? Well, when we first started talking about it, um, it really started around the idea of design. Julie had... You mean your adaptation started around the idea of design? The project itself, the project itself yeah. started around the idea of design. Wow. And um, Julie had done a piece for Mabu Mines earlier in the 80s called Vanishing Pictures, which was based on the idea of um, sort of oversized pop-ups. And she had, she'd wanted to do a larger piece that would have oversized pop-ups, like a pop-up book, be the entire set. So that was the original idea. We were looking to do a project together that would be based on these oversized pop-ups. And I don't know how um, Peter and Wendy, the novel, I think Julie had, we were talking about Peter Pan. I asked her if she had read the novel. Um, she hadn't yet, but I, it was a great favorite of mine. And um, my approach to it was that it should be a narrative. I think that the two original ideas were to approach the theatrical piece narratively, which of course Mabu Mines has a big tradition of narrative theater. Mm -hmm. And Julie's was to do it sort of as a book, the, this pop-up book. So they fit very neatly, these two ideas, mm -hmm. that it then developed into, into a piece about um, imagination, adult imagination, childhood imagination, um, imagination of the artist, the imagination of anyone reading and becoming thoroughly absorbed by reading. And so every, everything in her design, well, of course, it ended up that it, it's not strictly only pop-ups. Um, and it turned out to be really 
too hard to do an 18-foot paper pop, <laughs> which in actuality is, you know, three times 18 feet to get it to fold down and fold back up <laughs> and so forth. But, um, it's so depressing, isn't it? We've all had to go at that. We keep trying. What, what yeah. would have had to be? We still call it the What would have had to be 18 feet now? The pirate ship, the, uh, the, the, the Lost Boys home? The house. Uh, the house. The house. Um, the, the major pop-up piece really um, is still the house, which uh, we, we also, as we developed it, there came to be an idea, and because it's narrative, we could do this, that we would think of the scenes as shots, filmically, so that we could go close up or pull back, and we could be inside the nursery. Um, again, some of these things, I think, are ways in which we think about the scenes, but not necessarily what you, <laughs> what you see as you're sitting in the audience and watching it. But we, we start in the interior of the nursery, and at a certain point, we sort of pull around to looking in through the nursery window. Mm -hmm. There is a moment when the whole darling house raises very slowly like a pop-up <laughs> and folds back down <laughs> and um, as a producer early on when it was workshopped one of the things I did is made sure that uh, the crew was directed to pull it up very very slowly because it was to have its moment as a pop-up um, which is you know not generally how a crew thinks about making a move like that so. we, we should tell our audience here that there's one um, actor in the usual sense, human live actor, uh, Karen Kendall, who, who narrates and, and does voices and so on. Um, and the rest of the characters are played by, by puppets. Um, uh, Basil, which puppet have you brought us? I brought the Peter. Of course. <laughs> Peter in a box. This is Peter that uh, Julie designed. And it, it's hard for me to completely bring him to life because um, part of the concept of the show was there were, it's in a, uh, we were inspired by a Japanese style of puppetry called Bunraku, where there's three people working the puppet. So I would work the, the head and the right arm, and then two <coughs> additional puppeteers would work the left arm and the legs. And this allows for a very, very um, elaborate manipulation. And also part of this technique is to have a separate narrator, and one narrator who does all of the voices. This is also part of the Japanese tradition. So having Karen do that was in keeping with this Japanese style, which Mabu Mines has um, worked actually with a Japanese bunraku master before, so this was another project in that style. Julie designed, um, there were two bunraku puppets. There was uh, the Peter puppet and also the Captain Hook puppet. Peter, um, part of our notion was that he's much younger than he usually is. He really is meant to be about five years old. Um, and he's based on some photographs of uh, J.M. Barry with um, a family that he was very close to and that he developed the stories with. <laughs> Little boy Michael was, um, he's really based on. So yes, he can be very um, 
lifelike and little boy-like, in fact. It's a very different kind of... I, I wish Karen was here. I don't do the voice for the puppet. There's someone else who did the voice, which was an amazing, amazing experience to work, especially to work... There were, it took four people to bring one character to life. So I can just bring a fraction of him now, but um, it's a very different Peter Pan than many people are familiar with. It's a much more y a, a younger and um, slightly nastier, uh, <laughs> mischievous. And child. although the puppeteers are veiled in performance, which is also after the Bunraku tradition, where they're traditionally in black, although in ours they're in white, um, in rehearsal. I did watch Basil mouth every single <laughs> word. <laughs> so every little gesture he makes is pretty subtly connected to every word that Karen spoke. So you were acting every single moment for Definitely. Peter. But in a way, uh, the, the magic of, of this puppet, um, this puppet is sort of like a, an antenna for all the different energies coming to it. And, Karen and I would sit by side and Karen would actually play the role of she would do the voice of Peter and she would also play Wendy so there would be scenes where they interact Karen's sitting right here and uh, they would interact and I really believed the puppet was alive I mean I really believed it and I just felt like I was attached to him that this, this was this, the source of all the power and in fact it's like a lightning rod for all the energies, the many people that it took to create this one uh, character. Basil, could I ask you to turn Peter outward a sure. bit more? Yes. Surely. So that's good. And, ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what he wanted to do. <laughs> do you want, would it help if I lifted his arm, or does it just get in the way? Mm. You'd have to be on the other yeah. side. But really, it's a, it's a major um, dance to coordinate all three people behind this tiny puppet. And especially when you're flying and <laughs> moving all over. Tony, did you design a pop-up set? Well, I've had a few tries at it. Have you? My first effort was... Um, Pippin, where the um, opening of the show has nothing on stage, and then Ben Vereen pulls his little momentarily lost kerchief out of the stage and pulls the whole mm. set. It comes up and goes. And there are three or four, I think, pop-up sets in that production. But I must say, I was not entirely satisfied, and yet kind of thrilled that I'd pulled some version of it off. And um, when we were doing the tech in Washington, we went through all this stuff rather laboriously, and Jules Fisher, who was lighting it, and I were really kind of tickled with the way it was going. And then finally all that went away, and we were in a bare stage again. And Ben Vereen is standing there alone, and a little straw hat comes whirling out to him, and a cane comes whirling out to him, and a spotlight hits him, and it's just black void. And Fosse says, ah! That's what I call a set. <laughs> <laughs> That's how directors work with designers, isn't it? Uh, but I'm, I have to say, I miss him every day. So I, uh, he was wonderful to work with. Well, that was an achievement of the lighting designer. Mm -hmm. uh, That's right. Jim, what is your pop-up set story? Do you have one? Have you tried that? I actually did a show with Howard and Mark. 
um, uh -huh. a couple of years ago called What Not. Oh, and yes. We tried to do a couple of things, attempted in, in our very small, limited budget, but we, we did some fun things. We had a, a fish that ate two characters. And still in my basement. Still in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to digest yes. them, right? I don't know what it's doing, but it's down there. <laughs> we, we attempted to do, and we achieved some of it. Mm -hmm. Is that the fact that any of these things are down in the basement keep you awake at night? No. <laughs> no it doesn't. The things in the attic. <laughs> 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 um, Robin, um, you, uh, obviously, I want you to talk about how you worked with the other designers and how you happened to design the, uh, the set for your show. Um, you, you all came somewhat late to Jekyll and Hyde. I gather it started with a different director and entirely different designers. What happened? And you presumably came aboard before the other designers. What happened? Um, I, don't, I, I don't know what happened uh, other than being asked uh, Well, the, the principal to do set designer actually had died, didn't he? Uh, Peter, who was my long-time right arm, yes. And, Peter, he, he was Peter, uh, Peter Gould. Yes, he had, he had been uh, the right-hand man also for um, Sunset Boulevard and had been very responsible for mm -hmm. that amazing principal set with the staircase mm -hmm. and how to get oh, rid of it and how to you know have it come fly and slide forward and all those things. That was his territory, and he died I think just before the opening of Sunset Boulevard. And then, but you got, you were Can I just say before you go on, because I'm, so, yes. I'm oh, sure. so fascinated by the other side. Yes. There wasn't one mention of manipulation, but, but, of, but of actually living him. And it seems that it's, that it's, uh, it is absolutely the center of what we're all about. A great <coughs> conductor, you, you can be as thrilled watching because he's, because he is actually living the performance with the singer and breathing with the singer as well as with the orchestra. Mm. And, and exactly as you were describing your work with, with, yes. with Peter. And it's, and it's what we all do, I yeah. think, actually, or try to do. We had a little fight sequence in rehearsal yesterday for Major Barbara in which B.H. Barry, the great master of fight scenes, um, educated us all in the fact that it's the passive person in the fight, the person who's about to get thumped, or who is actually the person who's driving the whole thing. You know, someone grabs the neck, it's the hand that comes to protect that hand that actually is pulling the attacker across the stage. And yeah. it's all, it's like this. It's the yeah. story, yeah. And it's choreographed the fight scene oh, with the puppets in oh. the show. Which oh, my goodness. His first and only puppet fight. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if you can imagine a scene between uh, Hook, uh, Peter and Hook, and then six other puppeteers trying to follow them around. I mean, to keep, that the action is leading from the puppets, and then the puppets are dragging these yeah. other six yeah. people behind them in this very fast-paced fight. It was And something. you never tripped over each other? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> never, ever. Wonderful. Just wonderful. I, so, so I have no idea the background to uh, other but, than well, being asked. Well, suddenly the other director wasn't there, and you were hired initially as director. That's right, and, uh, and, and did what I, what I usually do, which is uh, while preparing uh, a show, uh, I usually start with a sort of concept book. Um, that's, that's mainly because I'm not an educated man, and uh, I quite often find it easier to push a picture in, or something in front of somebody to say, I sort of feel like this, than, than, to, than to wrestle with words. Um, and uh, having produced 
uh, that book, our, uh, our producer Gary Gunnis said, that's what we want. And we mercifully then found Jimmy could turn <laughs> that into something that would actually stand <laughs> you up. Mean, <laughs> you mean that's our design? <laughs> Well, That's yes, they, they, they fell in love with that and um, said uh, that that's what they wanted. And where did Jimmy, it come from? Where did it come from? Yeah. I produced it, the book. You, and did, where, did what you did bring you the book? Before? I did, I brought the book. Right. I brought the book. That's, that's what I basically start off with. And it just starts off with a, with a model and photographs taken with Beverly would be. Very disapproving. Actually, you wouldn't be disapproving. You're one lighting designer, there wouldn't be disapproving. Right. I have three lights in my, <laughs> had you in made, my sitting room. And, uh, had you made this model yourself? Yes. Yeah. Oh. And it's. Uh, had you made this model before you were hired? No, I was hired. And then. Uh, yeah. Then you did it. Yes. Right. I wasn't what hired as a hired? designer at that point, what I was hired, hired as the director, but, but I work in funny ways. So, but because they like that, we then had to find somebody who would work with me on that. Very often, that just gets thrown to a designer, and, and, and the designer understands what I'm about, but comes up with something entirely different. On, in, on this occasion, we've actually stayed pretty much with it, because we found somebody remarkable in Jimmy who was, who was able to put all his expertise and, and what immense the, artistry, I must say, the into the detail part of it. Of it then? Then I went on and directed. Or would right. you mean, what about the directing when it, somebody changes? <laughs> that's, I, that's okay. I, I'm happy with that too. <laughs> but it, we had a particular, a particular problem with Jekyll. We had, we had um, an original story, which is probably the state of the art writer, and then a, a, a book and a lyricist. Um, and, a, and a composer, and trying to put those three things together. Uh, and, and, to, and to build an environment in which pop music can live with, a, with, a, with sometimes very much a hundred years ago text, um, and sometimes in the, in the, in the libretto a not hundred years ago text. Hmm. Uh, so it was, it was trying to create an environment in which those things we felt could, could live, is what we struggled to do, all of us. And uh, Jimmy didn't come very late, but you came where it was pressure. And right. Beverly came very late, where it was immense pressure. And uh, it was tough, painful, uh, but actually often very rewarding. And, um, and like that extraordinary uh, creation, um, Sort of, sort of what we're all about, where uh, there's, there's something so um, thrilling about theatre when, 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 when re regardless of all of us, something else happens yeah. here. And, and for all the pain and the torture and the detail and the fittings <coughs> and the pinpricks and the sweat and the tears, mm. it's when this thing that we mm. actually don't have any yeah. control over mm. starts to happen, uh, and we and we don't honestly know why is mm. thrilling. That was uh, so it was worthwhile. The pain was worthwhile because <coughs> there were many moments of um, of our red box that was exciting. What about the backdrops? Where did at what point did they enter the show, and where did they come they're, from? Most of them are in the they're, book. They're, uh, they were very early on. 
and they're they're all mostly all uh, quite quite famous pictures um, with a little bit of computer distortion for copyright reasons. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's again quite quite tricky to to not end up with. Uh, you're not doing Sweeney, you're not doing Oliver, uh, and what sort of Victoriana is this music, is this text, um, is, is, is quite, a, quite a problem, so that you don't set up uh, an expectation theatrically that you're, you're going to get a lot of little waifs singing food, glorious food. <laughs> <or> <laughs> Oops, wrong show. So he came to you, Jim, and he said, this is it, do it. What did you do next? Um, the first day I saw this book, and the next day Rob and I met at the Plymouth Theatre, and we sort of mapped out the territory. And then I, I just went and made. That wasn't that the most. That was the tell about because it was the most extraordinary day. We well, went in and did from what we had already said were the proportions we liked, proportions to do with a human being as opposed to proportions to do with the theatre. And we, and we put those proportions on the stage, and it was just the two of us yeah. together in the, in, in the empty theatre. And we went back, we stuck poles up, and we went back into the auditorium, and they were, we didn't change them by Never half an inch. Them. Wow. Never they were perfect. Yeah. And, every, and there are two pillars at the back, right at the back of the Plymouth, and, and, they, and they were exact on the lines of our uh, box, yeah. so they masked not, not a thing. Yeah. Do you use them in, in the show of the pillars? No. The, the, no you don't. But, it was, but it was an amazing day, wasn't yeah. it? The it just sat the there and we never changed the proportions again. Mm -hmm. when, Sorry, did, you. when did you build the model? Well, after that day I went and we came up with the idea of what isn't there are these towers that move on and off. We have four of them going up each side of the stage. And we sort of started talking about that. So that I just went home and I made, literally out of, out of just white paper, uh, the shapes that we came up with that day and, uh, and started working on these towers. And uh, Robin and I got together a couple of days Actually, later. Actually, you were the one that had the courage to be expensive. The, the towers <laughs> are there. We went from the, these, are, these are three flat towers lying this way. And in the end of the book, we'd already gone to three towers up like that. Right. And I said, but now they're up like that. We can't move them. Right. And Jimmy was the one that had the courage to say, why can't you move them? <laughs> <laughs> coming coming from the not-for-profit like theater, I was, I was shaking. I said, you can't, you can't make it move. So Jimmy said, sure, we can make it move. And uh, that was the first yeah. kick up the backside that you did. Was was to say, sure probably luckily the towers <laughs> weren't in the book in the first place, because <laughs> they wouldn't have got to go ahead. It was, <laughs> it was a wonderful uh, can, can we revelation. get that model out here? Can we see uh, that model? Of one of the towers? Sorry, am I coming <laughs> Yes. Show us what you're talking about. This is, um, this is a, a sea tower. It's stage left. Um, they travel on and off stage. They're made out of steel and smoke plexiglass. And what this allows... Robin, as the director, do is, is by positioning these in different <coughs> ways, actors can move in and out as if they're going down alleyways and streets, and uh, you really get that f feeling of London. And we took the, the main thing you see is a silhouette, and we looked at pictures of London streets and uh, the way they were built, sort of always jagging out different architectural ele elements and we uh, we apply them to these towers so in an abstract way they're, they're all they're different. They're all different yeah. and, and ma mainly taken uh, which Tony would know uh, from Cheney Walk. Mm -hmm. 
just little profiles of, uh, of Cheney Walk back before all the bridges were there. And we used plexiglass, which was quite tough for, uh, for Beverly, because we were using plexiglass as a, as a sort of metaphor for, for fog, so that we, we, we didn't want to have to be in permanent smoke, um, so that everything is actually seen through smoke glass. Beverly, what problem did that create for you? Uh, uh, well, you have to know that you're doing something shiny. Um, yes. And uh, therefore, the foul spots cannot be a straight front shot, must be a diagonal. Uh, but beyond otherwise that... Otherwise, it goes right into the Otherwise, it goes, it goes, yeah, it slams right. If someone's standing in front singing, it would slam right into this and right back at an audience. So someone standing in front singing, if you get them like this, the splash is off to the side. There's always a splash. If you have something shiny on a stage, you have something shiny on a stage. And that this, the, 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 the issue is that the whole team deals with the implications of that because presumably you put it there because you wanted what it would do. Mm. Um, and and uh, the issue that was more complicated really than the plexi, we could shoot through it when we needed to, was, was uh, the fact that these, when they moved in and out, it put the side light either so far back to get out of the way of the offstage position that it then shot through all of this wonderful steel work. Um, it really had a quality of 19th century iron, and, and one of the things that interested me is that the script talked about the smells of the river and the smells of the alley. Well, that's the lighting designer's job. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and to, to, to create that mood that would suggest that, yes, there are people out there and you really don't want to go down there where they mm. came from um, part, was part of the sidelight problem. And these things moving in and out, um, I had... Uh, one choice was, um, you know, to make something very complicated that would perhaps ride with it or change focus and all of that. And the other thing was to take a more John Cage approach and decide that it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in that sense, this this as the set moved in and out of the light, it it created wonderful design patterns that could splash and throw shadows. And and we used uh, the Verilites that also in moving could move as this moved or could move through all of this ironwork and uh, it, it proved uh, beautiful, just beautiful and important to the, mm -hmm. to the feeling of the whole piece. To, to represent you, your absentee costume designer, that I might refer back to your mention wanting to try and make something dif different from the original Oliver and the other Dickensian things one thinks of. Uh, if you can imagine anybody this, this old, I was the original designer approached to do the original production of Oliver, and I had the same impulse. We don't want to see a lot of stage kids, adorable little stage kids, as this, these Dickensian ragamuffins. And so I came up on this first meeting with the producer with the idea that they should be all, all the children should be played by midgets and dwarfs. So they would look like the original <laughs> <laughs> illustrations in the original. So I didn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be careful of one's inspiration and how they deliver it. Jim, could, can we see the rest of that model? I'm just itching to see it. You do have a whole model back there, don't you? No, is I this what you brought? I just brought you brought some pieces. Of the towers. Um, Show us the rest of them. So, the rest of the towers. So, yeah, set them up. This is a B tower. <laughs> which um, plays like this. The stage is raked, so they're tilting a little. Um, 
And these are the A towers, which were down here, which don't move. So which, which way is which downstage? Is, um, downstage is this way. Good. So. Okay. And so isn't that like this? Yeah. Well, they play like this, and right. then these and can then these move out. go on. Right. Right. And then there's a C tower, or a D tower, I'm sorry, up here, which is similar to this, this tower, which doesn't move uh -huh. stationary. So it's just the B and the C towers, mm. as we call them. And how do you actually create backdrops out of photographs? Um, I mean, these weren't projections, not right? Very these were well, not very drops. well here, I didn't think. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough... It's a tough... Because we were in the, okay. the shop the same time you were doing yeah. Steel Pier, and it's a, a computer... It's a machine. It's about 16 feet long, and it prints through dots. Um, it sort There's of three little jets, four little jets, and they're printing all the primary colors. And it's very Rushing difficult. along back and forth, and essentially just making this gigantic translucency. Was it, it was a translucency. Yeah. Right? yeah. And it's very difficult to match the colors. Yes. Uh, it's hard to get reds. And also, you need more than 16 feet, so then you have to piece it together. And so it's, it's absolutely astonishing, because it's something of the future, and yet there's so much of it that's still primitive. They actually fix these uh, translucent panels together on a rough old garage carpeted floor. So <laughs> the odds of not getting a mis-slice or a, you know, a hole where they're taped... And they're very expensive, so yes. they give you about two inches to proof. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you can pick any part of the picture, but it's very difficult to match the colors and get the right colors, and then, you know, they print six feet of it and you realize that you made a mistake. You're, you're looking at all of it on a little computer image to try and figure out what you're doing. And so when this huge thing starts to emerge, well, you see are these mystical dots that have no relation to what you think we, you've talked about. We chewed a lot of fingernails. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and, and you were doing the same thing because you were dealing with, with the real yes. steel pier. Oh, yes, and uh, somewhat, for some reasons, I think we wanted to... Um, because the thing was rather depressing, gritty story, we wanted to not let it just become a romance, but to try to bring something of the real feeling of a real sky, a real background of you know whether it's sea or whatever. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. um, since you had an airplane, so it wasn't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, instead of a, a sort of romantically painted scenic yes, version yes. of that, to try to have the whole thing erupt from some sort of reality. So in, I think in both our cases, all our drops were sort of stacked together at the back. Mm -hmm. Beverly, um, there must have been enormous differences working on uh, Jekyll and Hyde and working on uh, When the World Was Green. What, in, in the nature of the collaboration, in the nature of the material, um, I mean, I, I, I felt in, in When the World Was Green that your lighting was absolutely a character. This is a um, Joe Chaikin, uh, Sam Shepard collaboration with, with two performers, um, very minimal sort of set, uh, and, and these huge shafts of light that were like a, a, a human being, and alternating monologues and, and intimate scenes between the two characters. Uh, what were the differences in, in working conditions and, and uh, uh, collaboration and challenges and goals and so forth? Well, in, in, in every way, it's a different theatrical event. Um, uh, Joe and Sam had written a very sort of th thoughtful, uh, quiet, meditative even uh, 
discussion, a man locked in a cell and a, a woman who comes to visit for, it's not clear what reason. There was a lot of talk about food. But, but it, was, it was really, for me, it was an issue of making that cell different every time we came back to it. I mean, just it would fade out and come back to something new and, and therefore alive. Uh, but it's still the same place. It's still always the same place. And to have some um, reflection of what was emotionally going on, except that there's nothing emotionally going on that anyone had discussed. It was not a verbal agreement with any of us. It was just whether it felt right. So I couldn't sit here and say what I did, because I don't, there aren't any words mm. about that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, one of the things that I find most interesting about lighting is that when you discuss it, it's all wires and plugs and bulbs and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and trivia or peripheral to what is actually the experience of people seeing it. And it's not verbal. What is actually going on is not verbal. Um, it's also the, really the only major new thing that's happened to the theater in a couple of thousand years. And it's, and it yes, and it's exploding. Yeah. Uh, this was my first Jekyll and Hyde. Budgetarily-wise, there was a vast difference, of course, in, and, and expectations of audience and so forth in the two productions. And this was the first time I had used uh, the Wiggle Lights, the Vera Lights. Um, Could you tell us what that means? This is a technology which came to us through the uh, generosity of rock and roll, um, <laughs> that, um, uh, where the equipment is, first of all, it's not incandescent, it's arc, arc sources. So the quality of the light is brighter than incandescent equipment, and it is colder. Its white is colder uh, by uh, you know a thousand or so degrees Kelvin. Um, it is therefore also not a wire which heats up in a bulb that therefore dims, but rather it is a a source that's on all the time in the lamp and goes out on. You can you can flick it and in a way whereas with a blackout of a stage light goes. Um, we couldn't have done the Jekyll and Hyde song uh, the it, way we did it. It's also a moving. It moves. Uh, yeah. it, they, they, and from, from a distance, from a computer, one can assign it where it should be next and how fast it should travel there and if it should have gobos in it and colors change and so what forth. What does it travel on? It hangs in one place physically in space. Uh -huh. And then it has servo motors that drive it. To its, to its destinations, um, uh, 180 degrees and 300, almost 360 degrees. Now, does the lamp itself move, or does the reflector, as it were? No, in move? this case, it's the lamp itself mm -hmm. moving. There's an, there are other technologies where the source stands still and a mirror moves, mm -hmm. um, and that uh, has its own uses. Uh, but this, in this case, we used the, we used the real thing mm -hmm. that, uh, that the itself moved. But that, that uh, flick of, of uh, between Jekyll and Hyde, where, where he goes from one position to the other and the lights go bang, mm -hmm. um, it, you can't do with incandescent. That's, mm -hmm. that's essential. Um, the moments when, when, uh, when Jekyll you know, uh, takes the drug and it hits him, and suddenly the whole world twists. And, and lights could, could go on and off before, but now lights that were on as shadows suddenly and so you can go from something which is experientially real for an audience to something that is surreal and expressionistic is this is what is this what's going on in his system is this what's going on in his mind and you can you can engage people that way mm -hmm. um, perhaps more intensely than you could before is it, is it fair to say that it because it's versatile that you can use less equipment than you would with a conventional lighting rig yes yeah. yes um, 
uh, yeah, because it can change color and it can be in different places at different uh -huh. moments. So one one lamp can be 500 different specials. Yeah. So so it makes it makes a lighting rig much more versatile. It sounds like it makes queuing the show, however, a much nightmare. more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> a nightmare. But it's, but it's sort of it's it's alive. Tony was saying it's the new you know the newest thing in a few thousand years. But it is interesting if you go back to Plutarch. The, the real Antony, as opposed to Shakespeare's Antony, arriving to see Cleopatra, the thing that he writes about uh, most is the extraordinary lighting and the, and, this, and, and the millions of little lights that he had placed in trees and all over the place as he arrived to meet Cleopatra. And to, and to, get, to have Plutarch talking about lighting on that mm. occasion, as opposed mm. to the banquet or the peacock stuffed with figs or whatever, is, <laughs> seems to me absolutely amazing. Yeah. And when we were discussing the, with, with Sam, um, Wanamaker, the new globe, everybody was sort of saying, of course there will be no lighting because it was, there weren't any. I know there's academics that drive me, uh, perhaps <laughs> I shouldn't be saying this in this building, uh, <laughs> drive you crazy with the knowledge that is based on, seems to me, fantasy, mm. uh, saying there would be no lighting. And you say, now wait a minute, he gets the plot from Plutarch, and we know that the Roman soldiers had brass shields and could actually catch mm. the sunlight and semaphore to each other, that the troops are coming and whatever. Do you tell me that the man is not with an open roof, capable with Hamlet, with an under the stage uh, ghost about to appear, that he's not capable of placing somebody at the back of the auditorium with a brass shield and getting a flash <laughs> of light into the darkness? <laughs> I mean, it's absurd to think that we didn't have lighting. and and. And the, no, it's this, a different I'm not talking about though, what yeah. you're saying. I'm talking about yeah. the academics that tell us that the globe yes. doesn't have lighting. But it, but the fact that that was moving, we seem to be coming. Uh, and we've just done a, a, a I haven't done, but Canada's just done a, an opera with with the chorus walking around with huge searchlights that mm. they that oh. they that move with them and go across the audience and things. Mm. There's something there's something very exciting about yes. lighting being able to move. And as you were saying, Beverly, the, the, that wonderful happen chance when the towers moved and you, you felt that something in the wings was mm. causing yeah. the shadow. Yeah. Is that a person moving? What is, the, the, it brought the wings alive mm. because of the movement. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you that the in the Baroque theatre where we're led to believe there was virtually no lighting except for the chandeliers and so But you know that's not true. If yeah. you look at the designs, you can see clearly that the shadows were all one way and one set and another way and another. Yeah. And they had, must have had torsiers outside the windows or something. You know. but, um, but, but I agree, the academic view of it is rather disappointing. Yeah. One, one of the wonderful things about the Jacqueline Hyde design, I think, uh, is, and you know, it's, it's for all of us really, is the fact that we go all the way from this new modern equipment to live fires. Yes. And and the the pyrotechnology done by Greg Mee is just extraordinary, mm. and and to have the reality of a flame, mm. um, against uh, with the reality of all of the steel and the plexiglass and the clothes, which are terribly real, in this sort of phantasmagoric story, yes. uh, it 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 stretched it. It helped stretch it all the way. Mm. It's real, it's real, but but uh, but heightened. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, that's the wonderful thing about the electronic lighting as opposed to candle lighting is the control to yeah. the, for mood and right. for but then also yeah. going totally backwards mm -hmm. Beverly has has Vera lights there's a moment as we're going into the laboratory where there's a sort of transformation from one scene to other. Mm -hmm. that was one of the most difficult things about this was the fact that there's no scene change written mm -hmm. into the thing everything ends with a song and at the end at the end of the song 
you're in another place mm -hmm. and you, there's no time, no music to get mm -hmm. you from what you have to somehow get there during the song each mm -hmm. time, which is a <laughs> sort of nightmare. It's a movie, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, but Beverly had, it says um, something about glistening with glistening with light or something, Sparkly. sparkling, sparkling shine. Right. It was, there's a, anyway, it was a very descriptive lyric. little bit of tiddly push in the middle of the song. Right. And you had Vera lights and um, all the reflecty thingies going right. sparkle, sparkle, and a mirror ball. And, <laughs> and, and, lasers. and lasers. lasers. Yes. So you had the, the very latest in these little pencil lasers doing mm -hmm. things and mm -hmm. the old-fashioned mirror ball just sitting yeah. there sending little sparkles. Yeah. So it was the combination of one end of our technical experience mm -hmm. to the other, wasn't yeah. it? it, was, it, it that fire, was extraordinary and, and to see. Yeah, and Bunsen burners, fires on, yes. the, on the moving yeah. table. Yeah. Has yeah. lighting made the most changes, the most change of all in theatre, would you say? What is, what that element you can is see, there? certainly yes. the technology and materials and, that and you guys use are equally modern. Well, they are, but things. you know, we tend to downgrade what people like Bell get is, and you know, mm -hmm. way before the Second World War, there were, and First World War actually, there were remarkable things being done that, and we've sort of lost the sense of what those guys, Reinhardt and those people did. It's the hard isn't that the important part of it, that we don't know about it, we the audience? Yes, I think it's know. sort isn't of got forgotten. The most successful mm -hmm. when, when that happens? Well, you know, that suggests uh, a, a, another uh, interesting question to ask here, which is, um, is the best design always design that doesn't make us conscious of the design. I mean, for, for a while I've thought so. And then I see something like when, when pigs fly, where surely a lot of the laughs do spring from the costumes, their appearance, their tricks, what, what the actors can do with them, how they fit into and perhaps even inspire your lyrics and vice mm -hmm. versa. Um, I mean, obviously, there is a kind of design where we are meant to be conscious of it. How do you all feel about that? What is good design and art? Should we be noticing it? I think the minute you make a rule, you're going to appear ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I long to see uh, Lion King, where, yes. where you can yeah. see quite clearly that it's uh, a performer right. and the mm. stilts are on the end, yeah. and, yet, and yet at the same time you can clearly see the giraffe. Yes. Uh, yeah. And as you were saying, there are, the, there are all the people in Japanese the theatre. Yes. Yeah. One of the most moving things, I think, is that, is that relationship mm -hmm. between the, uh, the, the, uh, the animator and, and the puppet. I did a, 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 a show with, with teenagers, and there was a, a, a real stud little football player <laughs> uh, was in this. We had a 70-foot um, muskrat, mm -hmm. and he was on the tail, this little bruiser, mm -hmm. uh, and, and two stories, it was a, it was a, a young ballet dancer had, cho had chosen to be in this thing too, and she was on one of the uh, sticks uh, doing the head, and it was a huge thing, there were 12 of them. First of all, this, the head was much too heavy, and we said to this perfect little ballerina, you know, perhaps we should swap her, and would she like to go onto the hand, and she just thundered at us, I will do the head, she said. Uh, and, and the head she did, with a superhuman strength. Mm -hmm. But this, this bruiser boy on the tail, when it moved, because it was such a huge thing, he, the speed that he had to go to keep the tail moving. And one of the most, in, in 40 years, one of the most moving experiences for me in the theater was watching, eventually, in performance, this teenage football player mm -hmm. with, with immense concentration on, on keeping the tail of this creature alive. Yeah. It was just 
so yeah, moving yeah. it was almost unbearable to watch because of the absolute uh, commitment mm. to but, the life of the creature that it was creating. But the question of uh, what makes good design is, is really impossible to answer. There was a critic for a while, uh, the leading critic for the New York Times for a while, came out, I don't remember this, Jim, with an article about what makes good design. I think that was the title. And his answer, he said, there are these productions on in New York at the moment, and the ones that are the best designs are the ones that you would want to live in. Now, if you make a list of what's a good what? design... <laughs> A good design is in, in the theatre is as far from interior decoration <laughs> as you could possibly imagine. And, but there I we think, were. I think there's a very... Uh, talking about like what Julie Taymor is doing with Lion King, which I haven't seen. I'm also dying to see it. But, and then the Bon Raku kind of thing. Something Howard and I used to talk about a lot is that the, the greatest moments in the theatre are when you get the audience to participate mm -hmm in an illusion with you, where you're believing it so much. If you can do it right in view of the audience and have them believe it. Yeah. We, we did an early thing with puppets. We were always flirting with puppetry. We never really got it right, I don't think. But, but there was one place where we had someone playing three people, and you know, one on each hand and a head in the middle, and three little bodies that stood on top of a piano. And we found that the guy who was doing the voices for all three could just move this mouth and just not even have to conceal yeah. the fact that he was talking and your eye only went there. Yeah. And that was so much better than trying to hide it. You know, mm -hmm. the audience was so much more delighted. And as designers... You talked about uh, puppetry and setting in France. We hear that a great deal. Is there no school of puppetry here? That there's, is equal to the one in France? Uh, there's not a school of puppetry. There are universities that have a, a department or that offer classes. But this one school is a really a unique school. And there are several schools in Europe, but the um, this one in the France... the Hanson Company does train people in a lot they, of They train people for their purposes. Well, they the, have their interest is, stretches way beyond their own. Oh, definitely. Field. I am definitely a... a I have received their benefits, and yes. they have aided me in many ways. But definitely, the training that they offer specifically is for what they do. Yeah. If I might say, as a as a puppeteer, I got I started doing puppetry because um, I could do everything myself, and there was not a line between design and the narrative. And the, because clearly, as as has happened in your shows, the the design certainly influences the narrative, or. Um, and for me, that was why I was doing puppetry. I could do everything. I could do the lights, too, and I could do the performance. And in fact, in this, I find, especially in puppetry, that the, the design is, is uh, so integral to the performance. Julie, uh, Julie Archer um, also won an award, an American Theatre Wing Award for Epidog last year, and she won an Obie for performance for the puppet that she had designed. And I thought that was so brilliant mm -hmm. that yes. she would be awarded a performance award, the designer, because the, the as, and I'm sure you would agree, I, those, yeah. those costumes are performing. I think that, you know, there's yes. certain people, Julie Taymor, I think Howard was one of them, obviously this woman is one of them, whose, whose design can't be, is not sought after. There are not the vehicles. There's not a vehicle in theater right now that Howard, mm could re truly show Howard's talent, something mm -hmm. like Jekyll and Hyde, none of these. Mm -hmm. So I think out of frustration that some of these people get together and create, I mean, that's what Julie Taymor has done, mm -hmm. create their own venues. And in doing so, 
like when Whatnot opened, you, you do everything. And immediately everybody is, you know, every, what, you're directing, you're, you're creating, you're starring in it. It becomes a problem, you know, but no one else is out there offering these things. Mm -hmm. You know, no one's out there. And, and, and it forces these people to create them themselves. Mm -hmm. At its best, though. It's true talent. The theater, the theater that's happening on the, on the Jekyll side is, tr is trying with a collection of people to achieve the same thing. Mm. And that is that finally, when we all come together, it's not the, it's not the individual parts, but, but the experience together, something happens that we cannot describe or, or put words around mm -hmm. that, that, that is an experience uh, that design, language, language design, music design, whatever, whatever that may be, when we all come, come together, the, the experience you say, well, just, we won't even try to say what the experience is. It, it is live theater. Yes. Mm. And yeah. it happens, and we experience it. Yes. We feel better because of it. Uh, we've understood in a way that you can't understand by reading the book or being lectured or whatever it may be. The experience somehow mm tells us something. Jerry Zach said something very similar to my students at the Actors Studio um, about he as a director comes with his dream and the design team come with their variations on the dream, sometimes their own, and what comes out of the combination is the audience's dream. Uh, and hopefully it's not a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's good. Do you want to do anything other than what you're doing? Hmm? You as want a, to produce? A, Do you want oh, to? No, 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 no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love designing for the theater. It's uh, the greatest. Beverly. Absolutely. Well, you are you doing do? something. No, no absolutely. Well, you've gone into Tony, you've gone I'm into totally direct. a theater creature, although I do try to get some but other things you going always to support do my habit. Design, <laughs> along with directing a movie, do you want to go into producing? I have produced in England uh, uh, mm -hmm. half a dozen things, three of them with Hal Prince actually, but I didn't realize how much of it was hand-holding and being a kind of major nanny. And, um, so Psychiatrist. Uh, yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. Do you want to be on Broadway at any time? I've been on Broadway as a performer uh, oh. for a number of years. Yeah. Oh, do I want to be a do Broadway producer? Pro I never want to produce. <laughs> That's the Directed. one, that is the one job in theater I wouldn't touch, mm. producing. And yet, Liza does it. Well, listen, and we, no, we don't want to skip heroism. over Danny, though. Dan, no, Danny, I mean, you're, you're a clothing manufacturer. Um, have you gotten bitten enough by the theater bug that you would no. consider? No. <laughs> it's a talent. I mean, ta There's a difference between constructing a garment and, and designing a garment. And, and what Howard did is not within my realm of consciousness. It's just not. I, I'm like the worker ant who, mm -hmm. you know, I can do all of that. I'm the behind-the-scenes person. He is the talent. He's the one who, who possessed a vision that none of us can duplicate. I mean, I think that if even the people in, in When Pigs Fly got together and tried to create another one, we couldn't go mm -hmm. to the places that Howard took this show. Mm -hmm. It's just not possible. Did you study to be a clothing manufacturer? No, I just sort of just sort of happened. It was one of those things, you know, you just sort of get into it and keep moving and swimming and it just happened. But, uh, uh, to, to pursue Mrs. Stevenson's question, Liza, uh, are you happy producing and writing and do you have a preference? What 
Um, I think what moves me is the particular project, and um, I, I do not think of myself as a producer, although it's what I've done most. Uh, <laughs> I, it's a major project. So um, I certainly, uh, the, you know, Gospel was on Broadway. The Dodgers were the real producers there, although I was a producer on it and worked on it. That's not something that I would ever want to do. <laughs> that, that's somebody who's a career producer. That's what they want to do, and they have other sorts of things in mind. For me, it's in the way that all of these projects, it sounds like um, there, there was a vision. It could have come from any particular artist, from the writer, or the, the spark could have been first the writer or the designer, or even a producer. I mean, I, my feeling is the producer has a great deal of creative input into a, into seeing the sort of whole picture, um, both um, both in terms of the nanny job and um, and really the artistic vision as well, and what you sort of are bringing out in the production and what you're you're not. And certainly all of us working with other producers, you you know, you know, people say, well, there's the artistic side, then there's the budget side. But you know, the budget is the art art side. Where, how the budget is spent. Um, determines how the project is. So hopefully um, the producer is a collaborator too and um, is having to compromise in the same way that all, everyone else is. Um, but I always say I'll never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the playwriting? Oh, I love that, but what I really like to write is actually not, in, and this is perhaps why what I've written is narrative, is not um, in, in play form. And I've been lucky to collaborate with Lee Brewer, who has is of course himself a writer as much as a director. Mm -hmm. um, so although that created some sparks in the directing of Peter and Wendy, um, because he generally directs his own writing and therefore has complete control, um, he was able to take a really narrative work and make it and bring out those metaphors, make it a theatrical experience as a director. I hesitate to ask Basil if he's doing what he loves or wants to do <laughs> anything else, because I have a feeling if we offered you a trillion zillion dollars that you wouldn't tear yourself away from it. <laughs> Is that well, right? I, uh, what was that figure again? <laughs> <laughs> a zillion trillion? <laughs> I'd love to do bigger and better things, but of course that I've been fortunate in working small in my own work. I mean, I work, I work with, uh, with other companies and work as a puppeteer and also as a designer with other companies, but in my own work, I, um, I have, it's been lucky that I work on such a tiny scale because I am able to, to basically do everything myself and I enjoy that. So I, I, uh, I enjoy all the things I do and I like to perform and design and direct and write and sing and create. Um, and I'd love to do more. And if I had a million zillion dollars, I'd do something really great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are your current projects? Robin, what are you uh, working on or looking forward to right now? Um, three, three plays, classical and um, and modern but period setting 
Peace. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you say something about Madeline Oshio. Is that? I'm not allowed to talk about you're that. Not allowed to talk about that. Well, then <laughs> I'm also I'm also working on uh, which is which is really thrilling and why. I, I feel such a connection to the other other side of the of our semicircle. I'm working on a on a, a first for me feature animation, mm. and it's um, that's classical, and it's uh, just thrilling. I saw my first. They, they were showing me about animation and uh, giving me a, from A to Z, and and a, and a very sweet guy had pages and was sh showing me. Literally from the beginning, how how he starts, and there's the blank sheet of paper, and he did a little circle, and then, and then put a little face, and and then finally, quick, 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 and then finally flicked, and it went from this blank sheet to uh, something that was recognisable, and 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 within seconds, he had produced just in a very simple line drawing and a flick, he had actually produced something that said with his voice, but with the drawing, hi, <laughs> and and. I was speechless for 20 minutes. Mm. It was the most extraordinary, moving thing to see, and and the, and, and and like uh, animating Peter to, to see the, his his concentration, uh, not only his, his hands but it, but his but his face and his, and and his shoulders and everything as he as he drew. I just it was the most amazing experience of creativity for me, mm. and it's a thrill to be working on it. Jim, what are you doing? Um, I'm working on Cyrano de Bergerac. Mm. Uh, Martin Chairman's A Madhouse in Goa, and Sunshine Boys. <laughs> That's quite a combination. Do you yeah. want to say anything about any of them? Where they are? What? 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 Um, what Cyrano's sort of at the Roundabout. Um, uh -huh. A Madhouse is a small production for Second Stage, which is a tiny little theater. Mm -hmm. And um, Sunshine Boys is for the National Actors Theater, which I've done Where a couple of shows. Where did you come from? Where did I come from? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, I started working in the theater when I was very young, so I, I started out as a carpenter and a painter, and I just sort of evolved into being a designer. Now, I mean, where, where did you grow up? Upstate New York. Mm -hmm. And then came to New York? Yeah. To be part of the theater? Yes. That was the reason for coming here? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Beverly, what are you working on? <clears throat> I'm doing a piece, uh, Missionaries, for Liz Suarez uh, oh. at uh, BAM Majestic in a couple of weeks. Um, the, uh, uh, the CSC is doing a production of a modern version of Phaedra um, after Christmas, a couple of small projects, and my ongoing work at Lincoln Center Institute, which is to put together a repertory for a whole next year school, uh, school tours, which um, include producing some theater, which leads me to interesting directions. Yeah. And Are there associates with Beverly Evans that, that do lighting? How many no. do you have? None. It's no, I you. think if somebody calls me up and asks me to do the lighting, they expect me to show up. <laughs> and they want what I have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true of you, Tony? <laughs> expect me to show up, yes. Indeed, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and what am I doing? Yes. What am I well, doing? Why don't you tell us what you're doing? <laughs> well, the insanity that you were engaged in. <laughs> well, the, um, I'm actually trying to work out a uh, possible transfer version of 1776, the setting, um, which is on, a, on again, off again basis every other day. 
but we're having to move it from the roundabout, which is a very friendly space, into the Gershwin, which is the largest <laughs> theater in New York, if you don't count <laughs> Madison Square Garden. So that's a current nightmare. I'm doing a lot of rehashing of costumes, and if anything happened on the way to the forum, as all the replacements come rocketing uh -huh. in and out. And at the moment, I'm in my, the tail end of my second week of rehearsal directing Major Barbara for the Irish repertoire. Directing theater. and presumably designing the set and the costumes? By default, How do you yes. collaborate with yourself? Well, it's, it's very <laughs> tricky. <laughs> I must say, actually, I found on Importance of Being Earnest last year, I, I had a thing that I had come up with that I really liked for the final act when all the characters are on stage. Um, and it was a view of the lake out of the sort of summer, summer house. And um, I was really drawn to it, and I kind of socked it in the model and everything, and was definitely going to go with it. And then I started to imagine directing in it, and I realized that it was much too interesting. <laughs> you <laughs> were upstaging your actors. Yes, so I did cut that. But as a designer on this one, I keep thinking, well, I think my bicycle shed doors could do for the uh, Salvation Army shed and things like that. Because it's a no money situation, so you do what you can with what you can. And actually, even in 1776, um, all the tablecloths are the green drapes from the importance of being earnest. <laughs> and much of the furniture is my own, as is the easel. And, you know, it's always a very, very it, it's, it appears to be on Broadway. And in, for legal purposes, it is. But of course, none of the other things apply. We get no money to make the set, we get no money to design it, and there's no royalties. And so you do what you can to do what you can. So if you, if you move into the Gershwin, you get your easel and your furniture back? Well, no, it would go. <laughs> it would go. It would go to <laughs> if something appears to be working all right, no producer says, well, let's get a new one of those. <laughs> uh, Mark, what are you doing? I'm uh, working on two new scores, writing lyrics for two new scores. And uh, for one of them, I'm writing the book as well, based on, uh, one's based on an Isaac Besheva singer folk tale, and one is based on a French farce from the 80s. Uh, and they're both, they're both very visual. I feel like uh, the time I put in with Howard has really, you know, ha uh, has a wonderful residual effect on my work. And one deals with magic, and in the other one, the leading lady plays two roles. So there's all kinds of quick change, and it's uh, I'm able to think in those terms very vividly now. So but, I'm using a handy group here <laughs> in the absence of Howard. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. clears throat> uh, Liza. Well, I think I'd like to say what Julie is doing next, okay. since I'm here for her. First, Peter and Wendy is going to the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles um, in December and January. And Julie is in Italy now at the very beginning of a collaboration of a piece that will be directed by Ruth Malachek from Abu Mines um, about the Balin prison in the 17th century Mexico. Uh, <laughs> a a prison that was created um, by the Catholic Church. It was to be a sanctuary for women, and women were lured in who had no other means of support or who were actresses or prostitutes, one and the same, um, and then were pretty much found themselves in this prison um, where the, with, unable to get out, the windows walled up, and Julius working with, uh, you know, religious imagery, early religious imagery, and is going to do a very um, simple visual. It's, the original idea is that it's to be the only visual with no lighting, 
although Julie, who is the one who practically has to pull this off, of course, knows that there will be lighting. But it's an acetate strip on which uh, there will be a full series of imagery that will be pulled um, at various speeds through an overhead projector, and that's it. Thank you so much. On that note, I'm going to have to end this wonderfully, wonderfully enlightening discussion on working in the theater from the point of view of the creative artists, the people that the audience in front doesn't see and doesn't see them take the bows, which are rightfully theirs. They're winners of the American Theater Wing's Design Award, which carries with it a very, very small monetary award, but enormously large in recognition of the talents that have been here today. Thank you, Professor Tish Dates, and thank you, Tony Walton, for conducting this extraordinarily wonderful panel of people. We are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is but one of the American Theatre Wing's year-round programs. Thank you for being here.